Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 21, verses 6 through 11. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when they had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. Great to be with you all on Palm Sunday. Uh, you know, this is the most significant time in the Christian calendar. And we don't always think about it that way because Christmas has uh, maybe what I would say a, a, an unbalanced weight in the way that we celebrate. And nothing against Christmas whatsoever. It's also an important time as Christians and believers in Christ to recognize his incarnation. But when we get to this week, when we get to Holy Week, Historically, traditionally, and even theologically, there's a weight that this week has. Holy week is what it's called. So holy just means sacred. It's set apart. And so we want to recognize that. That's why this morning we're pausing on our series of James for two weeks. Today, we'll teach a Palm Sunday text. And then next week, of course, an Easter Sunday text. And then we'll jump back into James. So for those of you that I don't know, let me introduce myself. I'm Rob Sweet. I'm one of the teachers here along with Lloyd Shadrach. I'd love to meet those of you that I haven't had a chance to meet to yet, so, or meet yet. So come down after the service sometime if you're able to. And I'd love to say hello. Um, but I'm excited to be with you, not just because it's a Sunday and we get to worship, but because of this particular text and this particular moment in time that we're remembering, this Palm Sunday. Uh, I grew up in a spiritual context where Easter was, wasn't really given a lot of weight. I remember Palm Sunday was just the week where we would kind of grab those plastic uh, palm branches in Sunday school class, and, and I would drive my parents crazy, and my brother and I would have sword fights with them at the end of the day. And Easter Sunday was kind of about the um, waking up in the morning. My mom would say, uh, uh, put your boots on and your uh, clip-on tie. And I knew that, must, oh, it must be Easter. You know, wearing a tie this morning. And then we'd come home from church and we'd get our Easter baskets with the plastic eggs and the plastic grass, you know. And none of that, you know, is, is awful, is terrible. We still do some of that stuff with our children. But I, I just remember wishing, missing uh, the opportunity for us to dig a little bit deeper. And so about eight or nine years ago, my wife and I, as we were starting to have our children, we thought, how can we make this week a little more rich for our children? How can we develop some traditions that bring to it a little more spiritual context so that you don't just wake up one morning and, oh, it's Easter. I didn't know that was coming up. So what we do in our family is starting today on Palm Sunday, we have something we do each day of the week leading up to Easter. And I'll share with you what we, one of the things we do at the end of my message in a little while. But the reason we've chosen to do that is to give this week the weight that it's due spiritually. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. That's the text that Devin just read for us. This morning, all around the world, churches are reading this same passage. 
There's several uh, versions of it in the gospel accounts. We've chosen Matthew's account today. But the church as a whole is focusing on this moment in time when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Now, if you are familiar with fellowship, been here for a while, you know that we engage in what we call expository teaching. That just means we're gonna unpack a passage, we're gonna go verse by verse. And I personally, the way that I love to do it, I like to take as short a text as I possibly can on a given sermon, because it allows us to dig that much deeper. So this morning, I'm mostly going to teach one word, which is a bit of a dream of mine. It's like, I'd always like to teach a sermon on one word. Now, you know, the reality is you can't just teach one word because there's context, there's verses that come before and after it that matter, but we're really going to dig into one word. Now, what word do you most associate with Palm Sunday? That's the word. That's the word we're going to look at today. Here's the thing about this word, Hosanna. Everybody knows it. People have heard it. Even if you're not, you know, that spiritual, you probably have heard that word. Very few people know what it means. Most people who do know what it means don't understand the full weight and context of that word. And so here's how I'm going to set the message up this morning. I actually believe once you understand what this word means, what it meant in its context and what it can mean to us in our context today, it might just revolutionize your spiritual walk. I know that sounds like hyperbole. It sounds like overstatement, but I believe that to be true. And so I'm excited to study it with you today. Now, to understand Hosanna, you have to understand the time that that word was shouted as Jesus rode in. You have to understand the scene that he was riding into, that he was entering into. And then you have to understand the meaning of the word itself. And you put all those things together, the time, the scene, and the meaning. And then we can answer the question, what will the word mean for us? What might it mean for us today? So that's the outline of our message. Time, scene, meaning, What does it mean for us? Let's start with the time. I literally mean the historical time that this event happened. To understand the significance of this, you have to know first and foremost that the Jews in the first century were under the rule of a powerful enemy empire. It was the Roman Empire, and all of us know a bit about the Roman Empire. They were brutal, they were powerful. Um, It was the strongest military and most impressive government the earth had ever seen up to that point in time. And one of the ways that they would enforce their power is through this execution called crucifixion. That was kind of unique to them. Like uh, in other cultures, like the Persians would impale people and other things, but the Romans crucified people. And they would literally put them up on crosses in public places, in, in, in the roads, in and out of a city, sometimes hundreds or even thousands at a time as a warning to the people who lived there don't you dare think about challenging our power and our authority. And these people being crucified would suffer on those crosses usually for days as they just slowly died. This was a brutal regime. The Jews in the first century did not have freedom to come and go as they pleased. They did not have freedom to worship as they pleased. Everything was underneath the authority of the Romans. That's the general time. This is a people under oppression. The more specific time was this Sunday was leading into Passover week. That is very significant to this idea of Hosanna. And I want to explain why. Passover is kind of like our Christmas or Easter. It was a a big religious celebration, big holiday. It was one of the highlights of their calendar, just like Easter is for us. Passover celebrated the historical moment thousands of years before 
that God, through his power, had supernaturally released the Hebrew people from slavery of the Egyptians, released them from bondage. And so think about this from a first century Hebrew perspective. You're celebrating Passover, so you're looking back to release of captivity, and yet you yourself are in captivity. You are under a foreign rule. And so you're not only looking back, but you're also looking ahead and you're saying, God, we need rescue again. We need another Passover. We need another Exodus. That's how they would have understood the Passover celebration, looking back and looking ahead to their own salvation. Imagine if the United States lost a major war. Let's say World War III broke out and a coalition of enemy forces um, aligned itself against the United States and our allies. And let's just say we lost the war and then we were occupied by a foreign power. Imagine how that would feel to us. Um, uh, that, that American um, independent spirit, that stubbornness that we have to be free and be able to rule ourselves in our democracy was no more. Imagine in that scenario, Independence Day is approaching, July 4th, so it's the end of June and you see July's getting close and now it's July 1st and you're like, man, this isn't right. How can we celebrate Independence Day when we're under oppression yet again? And, and July 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th comes, you can't let off the fireworks because it's not allowed by the military, by the power that's above us. Do you think that would create some longing in your soul? This is the time that the first century Jewish people lived. They were desperate for rescue. They knew their only hope was the arrival of a promised savior they called Messiah. From the time, let's now shift to the scene. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. All the people knew that when Messiah finally came, Jerusalem is where he would set up his authority. Jerusalem is the place from which he would rule on the throne. You noticed if you listened as Devin read the text that Jesus was riding a donkey. Not just any donkey, but a small little colt of a donkey. I was in our learning center earlier today and I, I saw, some of you saw it in the lobby over there if you're dropping off your kids. We have a, a donkey over there, like, like not, a, not a real donkey, it's an inflatable donkey. And I went up to it and I thought, man, this thing is huge. Like, this is a really big donkey. It's like a horse-sized donkey. That was not the kind of donkey that Jesus would have been riding on. He would have been riding on a, a very young donkey. You can picture a strong carpenter Jesus, probably his, his feet almost dragging. So it was this humble scene, but it was a royal, majestic scene as well. And let me explain why. Uh, I want to read to you Zechariah 9.9, which was a, a prophecy about Messiah. And in fact, Matthew quotes Zechariah 9 in uh, Matthew 21, verse 5. But I want to look at the actual Zechariah passage. We'll put it on the screen if we're able to. Here's what Zechariah the prophet said in anticipation of this moment. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the people knew to expect this king riding in on this colt, this young donkey. And they see Jesus approaching and they're thinking about Passover and deliverance that they're hoping for. Maybe this is the year that we'll have our own Passover in our time. And they remember Zechariah 9 
and they recognize him as Messiah, as king. Now, interestingly, who chose the animal Jesus rode on? Jesus himself. He had instructed his disciples to go to a certain place and, and there they would find a donkey, a mother donkey and a young donkey. He said, go ahead and take them. And if anyone asks you, what are you doing? You are to say, the Lord has need of them. I thought that's a kind of a little handy little Jedi trick there. I thought maybe I could do that sometime. Any of you have a BMW? The Lord has need of it this week. <laughs> I don't think it'll work for me. It worked for Jesus. So Jesus chose the animal. Isn't this interesting? Jesus is intentionally fulfilling Zechariah 9. That's fascinating to me because most of his ministry, Jesus said, don't tell people like, that I'm Messiah. You know, when they'd say, hey, are you the Messiah? He would say, you know, don't tell yet. Why would he say don't tell yet? It wasn't his time. This is his time and he's going full on out. He's like, I've got the cold of the donkey. I'm riding into Jerusalem, Zechariah 9. This is exactly the way the prophecy called it. The crowds did not miss the message. And so they responded in a remarkable way. Let's look at Matthew 21, which is our text again, verse eight. Let's look at verse eight. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. This is where we get Palm Sunday. It was probably palm branches that they were cutting and, and laying down on the ground. The real significance to me though is the coat. As a poor person in the first century, most of these people were poor, almost all of them, your coat was one of your most important valuable possessions. You would have only had one. You'd put it on in the morning in the cool of the day, put it on in the evening in the cool of the day. The other time you would always wear it is anytime you're going out to walk on the roads. Why would you wear it on the roads? It wasn't just a modesty thing, it was because the roads were so dirty. You know, they were dusty, they had manure in them. So you're gonna wear your outer garment, you're gonna wear your coat. So to take your most, one of your most prized possessions and willingly lay it on the dirty manure-filled road for an animal to walk on, why would you do that? Only if you believed that it was better for your coat to get dirty than the feet of the animal that your king was riding on. This was a very significant and symbolic act. They were saying, we see you and recognize you as our king and we will lay down our coats. We will submit to your power and your authority. This is the scene that Jesus was entering into. It was extravagant. It was provocative in that political situation. It kind of created this boiling point you think about all the messianic expectations. It's Passover. Everybody is looking for that Messiah. Man, now they're claiming he's here. You get the sense, if you put yourself in that cultural context, that either Jesus was going to overpower the Romans that week or he was not going to come out of the city alive by the end of the week. And that's what happened. Now, to add to this climactic moment, Jesus had just performed two significant signs. He had raised Lazarus from the dead a few weeks earlier, and on his way to Jerusalem, he had healed a blind man, Bartimaeus. What did the prophets say? Messiah would raise the dead to life and heal the blind. It was intentional, the timing of all of this. Jesus was creating this scene to announce his kingship, his authority, his kingdom. So that's the time, the scene. Now let's get into the word itself. What in the world does this word Hosanna actually mean? Well, we do have to look at it in the context of our passage. So look at verse nine. Look at verse nine in our text. 
Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, if you're actually looking in your copy of God's word, and this is one of the reasons why we encourage you to bring your Bibles with you, is you'll see that that quote in there, starting with Hosanna, is indented to, to sort of show visually that this was a quotation. They weren't just making this up on the spot. They were quoting something. What were they quoting? They were quoting a Passover song, a holiday song that comes from the Psalms. So you and I today have Christmas carols that we all know, you know, joy to the world, angels we have heard on high, hark the herald angels sing. They had Passover songs and they all came from the Psalms. And maybe the most popular Passover song that all of them would have known was Psalm 118, which by the way is the Psalm that Carl read earlier. I wanna take another look at it. Specifically, I wanna read verses 24 to 26. So I invite you to turn backwards in your Bible, if you have your Bible with you, to Psalm 118, because I'd like you to see this uh, with your own with your own eyes. And while you're turning there, I'll just say this. Every Jewish man, woman, and child would have had these words memorized. This was a popular song of their day. And they would proclaim this at Passover time, just like we sing carols at Christmas time. And it had significance and meaning to them. Let's look at verses 24 to 26 of Psalm 118. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So what they're shouting in the first century is a recitation of Psalm 118. You should recognize it. Now, some of you are thinking, but where's the word Hosanna in Psalm 118? I'll show you. It's in there. I'll show you. Verse 25, you can see it on the screen, that phrase, do save, we beseech you. That whole phrase is the English translation of two Hebrew words, hoshia and na. Hoshia means save. Na, in A, is how we would spell it is a small little interesting Hebrew word that, that just is a word of emphasis. It's almost untranslatable. The best way to think about it is an exclamation point. You know, they didn't have punctuation. Na was like, mm, yes. We translated in English oftentimes, um, please. In, th in this case, it's we beseech you. Like that whole we beseech you is translation of the word na. In other English translations, it'll say please, or, you know, kind of like save us, yes. I mean, it's this idea that it's not just save us, it's save us. Hoshia na. Now, if you put those two words together, and I want this to say it out loud, I'll, I'll say it and you repeat it. Let's all say this together. Hoshia na. Hoshia na. Say it one more time. I'm going to blend them together because after a while, when you say phrases like together, they, they tend to kind of come together. Hoshia na. Hoshia na. There it is. That's Hosanna. Interestingly, this is the only place in the whole Old Testament that Hoshia and na are used together. That means Hosanna comes directly from Psalm 118, verse 25. It's the only place it comes from. It is the source. Anytime you hear the word Hosanna, it's a quotation 
Lord, save us, please. Like we beseech you with everything we have in us. We need salvation. Would you save us? Uh, John Piper gives this helpful analogy. He says, imagine that you've fallen overboard, you know, from a ship and you're drowning. Hosanna is the word in this context you would shout out because you need rescue. Save me. Hosanna, save me. I need rescue. Now, uh, put, put Psalm 118 back up there. Oh, thank you. You read my mind. Now, right after this, oh Lord, we beseech you, save, you know, Hosanna. Look at verse 26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So what's happening in Psalm 118 is the cry of salvation has gone out. Please save. And then right after that, the answer comes back like an echo. Salvation is coming. Blessed is he who comes in the, one, in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a reference to the rescuer, the Messiah. So it's like, oh Lord, please save. It comes back. He's on his way. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's why that's important. Over the about thousand years or so between when one, Psalm 118 was written and the time that Jesus came, every year at Passover, they're singing this carol. They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is the one that comes in the name of the Lord. After a while, just the word Hosanna began to carry a little bit of the already and the not yet. It began to carry a little bit of the please save and salvation is on the way. So by the time Jesus walks into town, it's not only a cry of help, it's a praise that help has arrived. So when we say Hosanna today, we think of it as a word of praise and it is, but it's roots. We're going to cry for help. Hosanna is a particularly important word because it is both a prayer and a praise. It is both a word of supplication and a word of thanksgiving. It is simultaneously a cry for help and a shout of joy that help is on the way. So let, let's go back to our analogy. If you've fallen in the water because you've fallen overboard, you're crying out, save me, Hosanna. Then someone jumps in with a rope to come out and get you and you say, Hosanna again, but this time with a different meaning. It's like salvation is here. Save me. Blessed are you for coming to rescue me. Hosanna would be used for both. Now, bar, back to Mark or Matthew 21. Back to Matthew 21. Look again at verse nine. Put that back on the screen. Hosanna to the son of David. They're recognizing the cry for help and the son of David has come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Why Hosanna in the highest? Because they're recognizing where he's ultimately come from. You, our salvation, you king, is from on high the highest heavens, where else would salvation come from? This was the word for them to shout at this moment. This is the perfect Passover song to sing as Jesus wrote in in fulfillment of Zechariah 9. It was the moment of fulfillment of Psalm 118 and they recognized it, they saw it, they laid down their coats, they shouted out the right words. Uh, interesting, in Luke's account of this scene, uh, the religious leaders tell Jesus to, to make his followers be quiet. It's like, do you hear what they're saying about you, Jesus? A, it's blasphemy. They're calling you the Messiah, the Son of God. That's blasphemy, because clearly you're not, they were thinking. And, and if that weren't enough, B, it's gonna incite a revolt, and the Romans are gonna come and crush us. Do you see they're proclaiming you as a king? 
Jesus, make them be quiet. You know what Jesus' response was to that? It's just beautiful. He says, if they keep silent, the very rocks will cry out. What, what Jesus knew was the whole creation could sense that this was the moment. This was the fulfillment of the messianic hope. This was the fulfillment of new life bursting through death. And we get this glorious moment on Palm Sunday where we see Jesus as the triumphant king. The problem wasn't what the Pharisees thought. It wasn't that the crowds were shouting Hosanna to Jesus. The problem is what the crowds were shouting by Friday morning of that week. Their shout shifted from Sunday afternoon to Friday morning, from Hosanna to crucify him. What happened between Sunday and Friday? The crowds realized Jesus had not come to overthrow Rome. That's what happened. And in that disappointment and in that disillusionment, they shouted out, be away with him crucify him. If he's not come to be our military and political savior, he's no savior for us. They thought they needed military rescue, political rescue. What they needed even more than that was a different kind. There was a, a more deep and urgent need that they had inside of them. Uh, we learned from Luke's account that Jesus, when he rode in and all the people were shouting, Hosanna, do you know what Jesus was doing? He was weeping. Isn't that interesting? I want to read to you, uh, we'll put this on the screen, Luke 19, 41 to 42. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Leave that on the screen for a minute. Jesus' response is such a great example of a wholehearted man, to use the terminology that we've been using recently. Uh, do you hear his emotion? Do you hear his deep desire? What is his desire? If you had known the things which make for peace. We've talked about this a few times. Um, we tend to think of peace as just, you know, lack of war. Or, or an end to the conflict. That's the mindset that the Hebrew people had that time. Like, make these Romans go away. We don't want them to kill us anymore. Jesus knows peace is more than that. Peace is the idea of wholeness. Peace is the idea of completeness. He says, if you had only known the things which make for peace, like true peace, the crowd wanted a savior of their external circumstances. They didn't know they first needed a savior of their internal brokenness. That's what they were blind to, that the bigger oppression was not Rome, it was not governmental control and you know, who's making the rules, the bigger oppression was inside of them in their own hearts. Think of it this way, Jesus was not the savior they wanted. He was, though, exactly the savior they needed. So this was the tragedy of Palm Sunday, the blindness of the people to not recognize their true savior. Palm Sunday is a moment that carries both triumph 
in tragedy. And, and from the tension of those two things, we're gonna start to apply the word Hosanna to us in our day, triumph and tragedy. Let's talk about that. Um, what is the meaning of the word? Well, we've covered that. Now let's ask what is the meaning of the word for us? Sometimes when I think about the, the Jewish uh, response, I say, man, like, why didn't they see that? Why didn't they see their sin problem? Like, why did they just think that Messiah was just all about, you know, military and, and political and power? Here's the thing. We're not so different. We're not so different. We want Jesus to fix our outer circumstances and don't really want him messing around with in what's inside our heart. We, we want him to make our pain go away. When, when, when trial comes into our life, an illness, sickness, a broken relationship, man, we cry out for salvation and we should cry out for salvation. And we just want a savior that's gonna give us the kind of peace we think we need without going down into our greater need. So I think this is where Hosanna comes in for us today. Hosanna represents the posture that our entire relationship with God should be defined by. In other words, we should have a Hosanna kind of relationship with God. What do I mean by that? Well, remember, Hosanna is both a prayer and a praise. It's an acknowledgement of your need, your, your neediness, and then it's an expression of worship to the one who's able to fill your need. Hosanna says both, I need help and I believe you are my helper. It's desperation and worship combined together. It's simultaneously Longing and hope, it is a cry of anguish and a shout of faith. Hosanna can and should shape our Christian lives, shape our relationship with God. We are meant to be dependent upon him. We are meant to cry out, rescue me, and we're meant to recognize that he is our rescue, that he is our salvation. Now, to actually walk this way with God in this tension between the already and the not yet, in the tension between, yeah, yeah, you've rescued me, but I still am so needy, and there will be a day someday that all my needs will be filled, that's the tension that we live in. That's what it feels like to live between the first and second comings of Jesus. So in order to kind of live in this Hosanna kind of relationship with God, this help me, you are my help, we need to first recognize our own need. That's gotta be the starting place. So here's how I wanna apply this message is, is I wanna talk about how do we recognize our own need? And this is harder than most of us think. I wanna address a couple of categories of people in the room. And uh, I know there's probably more than two categories, but I want to talk about two. There, there are some of you in the room that don't know that you need a rescue at all. Here's what's interesting about this. The Bible would say you're dead in your sins. And that little phrase doesn't mean you're a worse sinner than anybody else in this room. You're not. But here's what dead in your sins means. It means you have no actual relationship with God. Your relationship with God is not alive. It's dead. Interestingly, you might be non-religious and dead in your sins, or you can be very religious, even in the Christian religion, and be dead in your sins, not actually have life in your relationship with God. Why don't you have life, some of you, in your relationship with God? 
because you're just like the people that Jesus wept over when he said, you don't know the things which make for peace. You don't actually know the things that make for wholeness inside of you. It's not religious activity. It's not non-religious rebellion. Those things don't make for wholeness. You can't be good enough to get whole. You can't find satisfaction apart from God, no matter what you try to be whole. You won't find it in any of those two places. You might think of it this way. You don't yet understand that your deepest need is internal, not external. That your deepest need is that your own sin, your own autonomy, independence from God has separated you from him. And there's absolutely no way you can come near to him apart from a perfect sacrifice on your behalf. Enter your savior, a perfect sacrifice who rode into town sinless and was willingly crucified for you. That's what the cross is all about. That's what Good Friday is all about. So if this describes you or you think it might describe you, I wanna encourage you, stay in this this week. Come to our Good Friday service. Spend some time at that cross. Contemplate what it means for your sin to be put on Jesus as a substitute for you so that you don't have to bear it anymore and so that you can be in relationship with, your God, with, with God so that your relationship can be alive. You're no longer dead in your sins. If you think you're there or you recognize you're there today, I'm just spiritually dead. Listen, the, the remedy to that is faith in Jesus Christ. Faith that he lived the life that you never could. You can't live a perfect life. You can't be good enough. You can't do it. He died the death that you deserved in your place. And then he was raised on that third day, which we'll celebrate next week, Resurrection Sunday, to allow you to be raised as well so that you can have newness of life, so that you can come alive. That's one category of people. Some of you don't know you need a rescue. I want to talk about another category of people as well. Some of you don't know you need a rescue anymore. You know you needed Jesus to forgive your sins. And so at some point in life, you're like, I believe Jesus died to forgive my sins and you know, he rose from the grave and I'm gonna live with him eternally. And that's right and that's true. But outside of that, you're pretty competent and self-sufficient on your own. If, if you're honest, like you look around and say, ah, there's other people around me that need Jesus. I, I needed him, but I don't know that I need him now. If you don't know if you fit this category, just look at your prayer life. You know, prayer is a sign of need. Prayer is a sign of desperation. Prayer, prayer is calling out, God help, God help. If you're not praying a whole lot, and, and man, prayer's not easy. It's a sign that you're maybe a little bit more self-dependent, that you've forgotten how needy you actually are, that it's God that actually provides everything in your life. If this category describes you, there's a good chance you're experiencing your own kind of spiritual deadness. Not separation from God deadness. That's impossible if you put your faith in Christ. But a different kind of deadness, a lack of vitality in your walk with God. You won't cry out Hosanna and really mean it if you don't believe you still need him. Now, what do I mean? Getting saved all over again? No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a posture of dependence upon God. Here's the thing. Most of us try so hard not to be needy because needy people, we, we don't like them. 
You know, I don't want to be needy. You don't want to be needy. We, we just spend our whole lives trying to be self-sufficient and independent. You know what Jesus said about needy people? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what that means? That means happy are those who know they're needy. Happy are those who know they need to be rescued, those who are willing to cry out, not just at the point of their salvation, but as a posture of their relationship with God. Hosanna, save me. And Hosanna, you are my salvation. You are my rescuer. I need you, in other words, not just at the point I put my faith in Christ to forgive my sins. I need you every hour. One of our core values here at Fellowship is spirit dependent. Spirit dependent, that's what that means. You know, Jesus says, apart from me, my presence, my spirit in you, you can do nothing. To be human is to be needy. The air you're breathing right now, you cannot survive without oxygen. The food you'll be eating later today, you cannot survive without food and water. You need things outside yourself to survive. Why do we forget this so easily when it comes to our internal lives, our spiritual lives? Now, once you recognize your need, your neediness, your desperation even, that's not too strong a word. We should live in a sense with a posture of desperation on Jesus. Once you recognize your need, then and only then can you and will you cry out, Hosanna, save me, help me, and you are my salvation, you are my help. But when you do, when you do recognize your need, don't be surprised if your rescue happens a little differently than you imagined it. And this is where I want to start to, to wrap up this message with this idea. Think about this. We're the same as the first century Jews. Like what we call out rescue me, what we're really looking for is I want to be pain-free and I want all my relationships to work and I want to have money in the bank. We're just like rescue me from external trials. You know what Jesus came to do? Like he, he, he came to rescue us, yes. And he did that by coming to be with, by incarnating himself, to be a human being living with us, to actually stay under trials, think about James chapter one, with us. So it's a little bit like this, going back to our, our drowning analogy. You're in the water, you're drowning, you call out, Hosanna, help, save me. Jesus jumps into the water and starts swimming and you say, yes, Hosanna, salvation. And he gets to you and he says, I have come to rescue you. And you say, great, let's get out of the water. And Jesus says, we will, but not yet. Because there's still some work that I desire to do in you in the water, but do not fear because I'm not going away. My presence through the spirit will be with you. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus between his first coming and his second coming. It's a little bit like living between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. You know, we don't know a lot about what happened in that period of time, do we? It's kind of a quiet time. Jesus is in the tomb in that time. His disciples were afraid during that time. So my wife and I, as we've thought about how do we, you know, disciple our kids through Holy Week, how are we gonna engage Saturday together? 
And so here's what we've decided to do. On Friday night, we go to Good Friday service and then we'll, we'll eat dinner. And that's our last dinner for a while. We fast most of the day on Saturday. Now, you know, that was a little harder when our kids were younger, you know, so they got to have a couple things, but, but now they're getting a little bit older and they're fasting with us on Saturday. We not only fast, but we spend our time on Saturday planting things. So we'll, we'll go out in our flower beds and we'll plant some flowers or we'll plant some bushes. Why do we do those two things? Why do we fast and why do we plant? Well, we fast because we're remembering, as Jesus says, look, you know, there'll be a time when I'm no longer physically present with you and then you will fast. So this is the time, men and women. He's no longer physically present with us. So we fast to recognize the needs that we have that are not yet filled, to recognize the hunger of the deep desires in us that are still waiting full salvation at his second coming. We hold attention as a part of this life between his first and second comings. And fasting is very symbolic and helpful to carry that tension with us. Why do we plant things? Because we recognize that even while we're fasting, the spirit of God is here making new things grow. Jesus's work of making all things new is happening even in his physical absence through the presence of his spirit. So we fast and we plant things and then we get really hungry at the end of the day and then we feast and we break our fast with a breakfast for dinner. You know, very intensely, break fast, breakfast. I never knew that that's what that meant until like a little while ago. <laughs> Silly, huh? My wife has one particular recipe, resurrection bread. She only makes it for this one meal every year. And so it's, it's a bread that rises, you know, it's got yeast in it, it's where the resurrection bread, so oh, she starts it at like noon. And so for like five hours, we're smelling this dough as it's kind of, you know, being worked with, and then it goes in the oven, it's baking, and it's making us more and more hungry. We're longing for the fullness of the feast. And then we sit around that table and we eat our breakfast. We eat the resurrection bread. As a small symbol of the celebration of Resurrection Sunday, but even more importantly, as a symbol of the great feast that we will have when there will be no more fasting, only feasting. To follow Jesus in our day and time means to recognize your need, to hold that tension and stay close to the one who can fill it because you believe he will and you know he's with you. But he will fill it in his timing and in his way. We're gonna close our service this morning by giving you an opportunity to practice this in a way. We're gonna give you an opportunity to take this word, Hosanna, now that you really understand what it means, save me and you are my salvation. And we're gonna give you a chance to proclaim it in two different ways. One is gonna be through a responsive reading. I'll read the part of the leader and you all read the part of the congregation. And then the second way is through singing. We're gonna to get to sing the word Hosanna one more time. So let's go ahead and stand on our feet. I have chosen in these readings to try to articulate some specific needs that I believe we have in our day and age, walking with Jesus right here in Middle Tennessee in 2019, longing for his second coming as we look back on his first coming. And so the degree that you identify with these needs I'm going to read, your response will be these words and it'll all be on the screen. Hosanna, Lord, 
save us. Lord Jesus, we need your rescue because we have become captive to things that steal our joy. We need your forgiveness because we have given in to temptations that promised to fill us but left us empty. We need a deeper sense of your grace because sometimes shame wraps tightly around our hearts. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Lord Jesus, we need to hear your voice because we have wandered from you and lost our way. We need you to strengthen our faith because sometimes doubt overtakes our hope. We need your peace because our hearts are not whole. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Lord Jesus, we need your spirit to comfort us because we ache with grief and loss and loneliness. We need your love to reassure us because sometimes we are insecure, anxious, and afraid. We need you to recreate us because apart from you, there is nothing good in us. Hosanna, Lord, save us. And Lord Jesus, we need your rescue. So help us to remember our need and give us faith to proclaim that you have come for us and you will come again. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna.
Amen. I want to send you out with the words that form the final words of our entire Bible, Revelation chapter 22. It says this, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.